Good evening. Glad you could join us for uh, kicking off a new series, a study of the book of Acts. Uh, Laura was saying to me, we were talking about what, what would be a good study to take us further, deeper into the scriptures. And she said, you've been here at the church 10 years. That's hard to believe. And never taught the book of Acts here. So that's why we're doing it. You're going to love it. I'm going to love it because it just so lends itself to maps. And I mean, it's just, there's so much geography in this. But we also, Laura and I were in Greece and Turkey uh, in October. And so we've been at most of these sites. And so I'll bring you some pics from the sites too. So hopefully we'll you know, make it come alive for you. So let me say a prayer for us and we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening. Thanks that we have the freedom in this country to come together and study your word. I pray that it would enter our hearts and our minds and engage everything about us that we might more closely follow you. I pray that you would deepen our faith and touch everyone here at their point of need tonight. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you've been here much, you know that you can text questions during class. We'll answer as many as, as we can. But just text to that number during class, and Laura will try to sort through those as, as best we can. One thing I would encourage you to do in this study is we brought the lights up a little, and we'll bring them up more if you want, so that if you want to bring your Bibles and make notes in it, make notes in the uh, margins for whether it's history or geography or it's uh, scriptural tie-ins, I would really encourage that. So feel free. We'll turn the lights up so you can see them and write in them and uh, kind of go from there. The book of Acts, let's start with just a little introduction. We won't go too deeply into this, but I want you to get a feel for the world of the book of Acts and what this book actually is. So this is geographically, this is basically the Mediterranean world at the time of the book of Acts. The book of Acts starts about 30 AD. It starts with the uh, resurrection of Christ. So we're going to date that about 30 AD. And it ends, the very last chapter, leaves off likely about 62 AD. Paul's in prison in Rome, but he hasn't been killed yet. And so it just sort of, not abruptly, but it basically ends in that. And that's about 62. So this is going to cover about 32 years. And a lot's going to happen in that time frame. And basically what's going to happen in the book of Acts is you're going to see some interesting things happen here. There's some interesting literary devices in the book of Acts. And there's a narrative arc of the story. And I'll try to make that come out and highlight that to you. But there's actually really symbolic things in the geography. The story of the, in Acts is going to start in Jerusalem. So we're going to start down here. And think of that as the uh, capital of God's kingdom, if you will. It's going to be effectively where Jesus Christ is crucified and raised. In the book of Revelation, it's going to be at least symbolically, depending on your reading of Revelation, but in any case, at least symbolically the capital of the new heavens and the new earth. So it starts geographically in Jerusalem with the kingdom of God. This book is going to end up here in Rome. With Paul in Rome basically with the gospel having spread all that way in that short period of time. So geographically what's happening is you have Rome, which is the symbolic capital of the kingdoms of this world. 
other words, Rome is a symbol of the secular powers of the world, oppressive powers, secular powers, worship, all these different gods. And think about the book of Revelation. Rome is also a symbol in Revelation of the forces that are arrayed against God, the anti-Christian forces in the world. So the book of Acts basically is telling the story of the spread of the gospel, but what it's also doing in just a subtle way is we're going to start in Jerusalem with the beginning of the kingdom of God, the beginning of the church. Church will be born tonight. And so then at the end, we're going to end up in Rome being ready to conquer the forces of the world. So there's a lot of symbolism and a lot of power uh, in, the, in the book of Acts. So Jerusalem to Rome, a lot of literary features, some symbolism in that, and you're going to basically see this entire portion of the world in 32 years is going to be not completely Christian, but really covered in a large way with Christians. So let's jump into what is this, uh, what is this book mean? Where does it come from? So I actually need to start in the book of Luke. Luke wrote the book of Luke, which is the gospel, and he wrote the book of Acts. They're two different works, but they're sort of a part one and a part two. Part one sold so well that publishers said, we need a sequel. You know, we need a, a, another movie to go with this. So the book of Luke, written by a guy named Luke, he's not a Jew, he's a Greek. He's not one of the original 12 disciples. He is someone who became a Christian and ends up, you'll see as we get to the narrative, where he joins Paul and is a companion of Paul through the rest of his life and all of his ministries. So that's what uh, Luke is. And here's how he opens his gospel. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. This is the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Well, there are three really interesting things here. First, this book is written to someone named Theophilus. That turns out to be a little bit of a fortuitous name. So it could be that this is really written to a patron, someone who said, I'll underwrite you doing all this research and writing up this account of Jesus Christ and his ministry. Could be a guy named Theophilus. The other option is, because in Theophilus, uh, in Greek, the word Theophilus means one who loves God or lover of God, it could be that that's a symbolic idea. In other words, he's basically saying, in fact, you could translate that just as easily. I wrote this to you, most excellent lovers of God, so you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. In other words, I did all the research, and I've got the facts. This is investigative reporting. You can count on it. So it may be that it was written for the Christian church at large. Either way, it ends up in the hands of the Christian church at large. Second interesting thing. The Gospel of Luke and Luke's writing is radically different from the other Gospels because he's radically different. He's not a Jew. He's not one of the eyewitnesses. And he's going to go about this in a different way. Because he's a physician, he's well-trained. He's educated. 
because he's Greek, he's educated in a Greek way of thinking about the world. Think of it more like someone who's been to a university in America. You just think about the world a little differently. You've got a liberal arts education, so to speak. That's Luke. He's a Greek, he has that kind of an education. He is familiar with the Greek histories, the history of Herodotus and the Persian War, Thucydides and the Peloponnesian War. He's read those Greek histories. They read more like what you and I think of today as modern histories, meaning they were researched, compile a lot of information, write it up, and actually try to tell you what happened. The other Gospels, not that way. They're written by Jews. That's not their view of history. I'm not saying they're not telling you what happened. They're just not trying to write an orderly account of what happened. That's just not the way they view the world. They're going to write to you what happened, but not even sometimes in chronological order because they want to make a point of what does it mean. Luke wants to tell you what happened. So he's really the, one of the historians. And I think it's interesting that God chose Luke with his background as a Greek to speak a history that would resonate with us, even more so than the other Gospels. Third thing, that word eyewitnesses. He said they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses. So in other words, he said, I talked to the people who were with Jesus and I got the facts. That word eyewitnesses is the, that particular Greek word is only used here in the New Testament. This is the only place you'll see it in the New Testament. There are other words for eyewitness and you'll see them in other places, but this is a peculiar word. It means instead of I saw what happened, this word means that I have examined what happened. In other words, these are people who have not only seen what happened, but thought about what happened and are relating to you what happened. This word is where we get our English word autopsy. In other words, I myself am investigating this. That's a little morbid, but that's why our word autopsy, it's not just I saw this happen. It's like, no, I am going to go investigate it. That word is only here in the New Testament all over the secular writing of the time, very much in the medical literature of the time. Not a surprise that Luke would use it. Sort of like he said, if, if somebody came to me, I said, oh yeah, I saw so-and-so the other day. A doctor would say, I examined so-and-so the other day. I just met with somebody, talked to them five minutes later. I probably can't remember what they're wearing. The doctor has given you an examination. I mean, they've really carefully studied it. That's what this word is. That's why Luke would use it. And so it's an interesting, you begin right from the beginning to see Luke and his orientation to what he's doing. So that's the Gospel of Luke. In Acts, you'll see the second part. Here's how the book of Acts opens. In my former book, Theophilus, the Gospel, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So he's summarizing. Before he jumps into the next book, he says, in my other book, you remember, I told you about everything that I researched that Jesus taught and that he did, and I ended it with the resurrection. He's going to start this book with the resurrection and then pick up with the part two, what happens to the church after that. 
So the book of Acts starts like this. He said, so the uh, believers after the crucifixion were together, Jesus is raised, they see him. And so when they met with Jesus, this is interesting, this takes up, well, what did the disciples do after the resurrection? Well, they asked Jesus an interesting question. They said, Lord, is it time now to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's interesting, isn't it? They're still thinking about the Messiah. When he's crucified, they thought, wow, we're crushed. We thought he was going to be a great king, and he's going to throw off the Romans, and the Messiah is going to be this ruler, and Israel was going to be a, a great kingdom again. You know, they had that idea of the Messiah. Jesus is crucified, and they're crushed. Like, what does this mean? How could the Messiah fail? How could he die? Then the resurrection, they go, oh, my goodness. You know, we never saw that one coming, right? And so now what Jesus said starts to make more sense, but they still have it in their mind that, okay, now we're really ready to get out there and become a kingdom. He said, is it time to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know the time or the day the Father is set by his authority. But here's what you need to know. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. Again, you're going to see a lot of talk about eyewitnessing and what was actually seen and done. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up to heaven before their very eyes. In other words, he ascends to heaven. They were looking intently into the sky when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. They said, men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go, which Jesus talked about. And that's where you get the book of Revelation is the second coming of Christ. So that's the what now. And so after this, the disciples are standing around going, wow, you know, what do we do now? Clearly, this story is not over, and we're going to get some kind of power, and we clearly have a mission. You know, we remember what he said about, you know, go make disciples of all the earth. What are we going to do? Who's got a plan? Somebody Google this and find out. What do you do next, right? So it's kind of a what now kind of a moment. And Jesus says, I want you to wait until you receive this power. Which brings us to the day of Pentecost. That's how chapter 2 opens up. And so the disciples, there are about 120 of them. The text in Acts tells you that they are about 120 who have stayed together and didn't drift away and said, you know, this isn't over. Jesus, we believe in Jesus. So really small group of people, and they're all together in Jerusalem. And they're waiting. They don't know exactly for what, but they're waiting. It comes to the day of Pentecost, and this is what happens. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that were separated and came to rest on each of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Well, first, a little background of when is this happening and what is this Pentecost? Hebrew word for this is Shavuot, S-H-A-V-U-O-T. It means weeks. Shavuot is a festival, one of the feasts of the Jews uh, called for in the Old Testament. It's called the Feast of Weeks. What's significant about the Feast of Weeks is it comes exactly 50 days after Passover. So you remember at Passover, Jesus is crucified. 
The following Sunday, he's raised. And so literally 50 days from that Passover until the Feast of Weeks, and they would count the days up until this next feast. The other reason for this feast being there is the Jews thought, and, the tradi and this is true today, but Jews who are observing a feast today, the Feast of Weeks, for them, doesn't mean the coming of the Holy Spirit on the Christians. What it means is that's when God gave Moses the Torah, the Ten Commandments, on Mount Sinai. So today, Jews celebrate the Feast of Weeks as remembering that that's when God gave the Torah to Moses on Mount Sinai. Pentecost is a Greek word, and it means 50 days, basically. I mean, it's 50 days later. So it takes the Jewish feast and recognizes this happened on Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, which is 50 days later. In Greek, you'd call that on the 50th day, Pentecost. This is what happened. The Christian church thinks of, thinks of this holiday or this feast or this event as Pentecost. So at that feast, something significant happened. And what is significant, what this means to the Christian church is, this is when the Holy Spirit arrives. That's where the word Pentecostal comes from. The Pentecostal movement is associated with a movement of people who thought that we should be doing things like this. We should experience the Holy Spirit in ways that are what we call charismatic, uh, speaking in tongues, miraculous healings, that sort of thing because you're gonna see some of these things happen in the book of Acts. That starts on the day of Pentecost, and so that's where the Pentecostal movement gets its name. It's like, hey, we, we are gonna be a church just like what happened at Pentecost. We're gonna have the Holy Spirit come in, we're gonna be speaking in tongues, we're gonna be doing all these miraculous things of the Spirit. So that's what this means to Christians. The other thing that's interesting about this is, you may remember back, and this is before Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist, as he was baptizing, do you remember what he said? I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me, one who's coming, who's more powerful than I am, he's talking about Jesus, and he said, whose sandals, I'm not even fit to carry his sandals. He will baptize you not just with water, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So that's what John the Baptist said before Jesus' ministry starts. The day of Pentecost is the fulfillment of that prophecy. In other words, now they realize that's what John was talking about, something radically new and different. He literally bathed us, baptized us in the Holy Spirit and fire. That's why you see the description of the Holy Spirit here is it kind of looked like tongues of flame or fire coming upon them. Make sense? That's what's happening as the book of Acts open. That's very significant. I mean, why is that the first event in the book of Acts? It's a turning point. It's a seminal event. Because the book of Acts, in one sense, is really the story of what the Holy Spirit did. You have God the Father and the Creator. You have Jesus Christ the Son who comes, dies on a cross, is raised from the dead, as salvation for us. And then you think, okay, story's over. No, then you have the Holy Spirit begins to move the kingdom forward and proclaim the gospel. So in a, some sense, the book of Acts is basically just the story of what the Holy Spirit did among these people. Well, what it does in this specific case, let's go on with Acts, they're sitting there and the Holy Spirit comes on them. It says, what happens next? Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Why are there Jews from all the world here? Jews from all the world here, 
because of the Feast of Weeks. They're there in Jerusalem to celebrate in the temple and make sacrifices for this big feast day. So there are Jews from all around the world here on that day. When they heard the sound of what's happening, a crowd came together in bewilderment. They can't figure out what is going on here because everybody heard them speaking in their own language. So they're from all over the world, and they hear these guys speaking, and everybody hears it in their own language. Something really strange is happening here. Utterly amazed, they said, aren't these the men who are speaking the Galileans? I mean, they speak Aramaic, basically Hebrew. They speak this Aramaic. How is it that Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, that'd be like Iraq, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, I'll show you where these are in a minute, Phrygia, Rome, people that speak Latin from Rome. He said, Cretans and Arabs, we all hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? This is an interesting passage. This is one of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. The word tongues, there's there's not a separate word for tongue and language in the Greek language. So they translate it tongues. Some of your Bibles will translate it. They were speaking. We all hear them speaking in our own language. So there's a little bit of a uh, lack of clarity there in English about when is it talking about your tongue, when is it talking about a language. But this is where we get our whole phrase of speaking in tongues. This is what the Bible means by speaking in tongues. They were speaking and everybody's hearing their own language without taking their smartphone and turning on the translator. I mean, that's basically what's happening here. So that's what it means is they're hearing this miraculously in their own language. The map of this, just this is a map that just shows you all the places that were mentioned in this passage, everywhere around the world that they mention. And you notice it's, it's literally everywhere around Jerusalem. You know, you've got from Arabia, speaking Arabic, you've got Egyptians, you've got uh, people speaking Persian, you've got people speaking Latin. I mean, you've got all different kinds of language because you've got Jews who have been dispersed all around the world. But the Jews would come back when they could for these feasts. Not all Jews, but some. And so the timing, God's timing is very interesting because this happens on this day when you've got all these Jews who are going to go back home and tell everybody what they saw. What a brilliant marketing campaign. It's a brilliant way to say, how do you get the gospel around the world when, you don't, when Al Gore has not yet invented the internet? Do it on Pentecost, and now everybody's going to go home and tell everybody what they have seen. So that's what's happening here. There's another lesson. I want to connect this. You're going to notice that there, there are always connections. God's got a plan. These aren't just random events. I want to remind you of something that you probably have heard of but you may not think of in this context. Back in Genesis chapter 11, because back in the early days, do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel? So the people of earth are concentrated up here in Mesopotamia, basically around uh, what's Baghdad today. The, city of, the ancient city of Babylon, the ruins of Babylon are really close to Baghdad today. So they're basically there. And the story of Babel says... They came to that place and they began building this great tower. And the point of the story is that people said, 
we're going to be like God. We're going to build this tower all the way to the sky. We can conquer nature and conquer the world by building with these bricks. It's a story about man's rebellion against God's authority and saying, I'm going to do this my way. That's what the story of Babel's about. If you remember, in that story, it says God saw what they were doing and he came down and he confused them by making them all speak different languages and therefore he scattered them. And so God doesn't destroy them or punish them for their rebellion. What he does is he stirs that pot. And so here are all these people who can no longer communicate and they begin to fragment. And then the story of Genesis goes on as they go on out into the world and fill up the world and you, you see different peoples divided by different languages, which is still true today. So you see rebellion of humanity leads to confusion and division. That's, that's what the Babel story is about, is that rebellion against God, what happens? We become confused and divided. So you can, I'll let you draw your own personal lesson from that, but that's the big picture. What's happening here? Here, you've got people from all over the world who speak different languages, and now what is God doing? There's a reason he does this miracle first. He basically is undoing or coming full circle from Babel, from the rebellion of humanity, their confusion and scattering. God is saying, because of what Jesus Christ did, and now the kingdom comes into the world, and I want to show you what the kingdom means. It means no more confusion, no more division. Everybody understands what's being said. Do you see the brilliance? That God is just so brilliant. I mean, in addition to being God, he's just brilliant. See, so you see language being used as a dividing thing. Now, language is a unifying thing. What's the point? The gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, spans people. It's not just for Jews. It's not just for people that speak Persian or people that speak Latin. It's for everybody. And the fact that you are now miraculously all hearing it is that powerful symbol of unity. Does that make sense? That's what's really going on in Pentecost. God is not just doing something cool, like speaking in tongues, and everybody goes, never saw that before. What he's doing is he's saying, if you are smart enough to understand what's happening, I'm going to tell you what big picture, what's happening here. The gospel is going to unite the world. It's going to bring all the scattered people home. That's the significance of what's happening here with this speaking in tongues, is this undoing uh, Babylon. Now, on a practical matter, it also introduces a pretty cool miracle, and I'm just guessing you might have some questions about that. Thank you. Uh, going back to the beginning of the story, between the time that Jesus was raised from the dead on Sunday and 50 days later for Pentecost, um, was he appearing to people in Galilee? And also, were the, the apostles in Jerusalem that whole 50 days, or were they in Galilee as well? Yes, good question. You have to piece this together from other, other accounts in the Gospels, but the short answer to that is Jesus is appearing to people in the area of Jerusalem and in the area of Galilee. And so the disciples go to Galilee, and you'll see, by the way, uh, John chapter 21, into the Gospel of John, they're all out fishing, and Jesus comes and appears to them, and that happens up there. As the book of Acts opens, he says, 
you wait for me in Jerusalem and power is going to come to you in Jerusalem. And now you know why he wants him in Jerusalem for the Pentecost. We're going to immediately spread this around the world. So he is appearing in different places and the disciples have moved in that 50 day period. That's a good question. Okay. The two men in white in chapter one, mm-hmm. who are they? Yes. Well, I don't know their names, but the two men in white, just kidding. All right. The two men in white, hard to know, but it's really pretty clear that you have angelic beings, meaning messengers of God that are there. The fact that they're clothed in white, if you remember our story of Revelation, white means purity, righteousness. I mean, that's a strong symbol of of white clothes mean are a symbol of your righteousness. The fact that they come and deliver a message about Jesus tells you they are, the word angel literally means messenger. In fact, in the Greek language, Angels used all over your New Testament, it's just translated messenger a lot of the time because it's not talking about a supernatural being, it's talking about us as messengers. So those are clearly messengers. The fact of their attire and the role that they play makes most people think these are angels. These are beings that are sent to explain what just happened to the disciples. Okay, can you give an interpretation of the idea of baptism with fire? Well, I think what that question is asking is, well, let me just tell you how Christians have understood this. Give you a couple of choices here. The idea of baptism with, a lot of people read a lot into baptism with fire. So there's two ways to think about it. One, baptism with water, baptism with the Holy Spirit, or spirit baptism, or fire baptism. Some people see those as two different events. In other words, you can become a Christian being baptized in water, but you're not really fully a Christian until you have had the Holy Spirit enter you. And so the idea of this kind of second work that God is doing and the Holy Spirit being part two of your conversion, some people have looked at this and said, okay, this is part of that. And so this fire baptism or Holy Spirit baptism is something that's supposed to happen to everybody. Others would look at it and they would say, no, this is a dispensation that God is giving. In other words, He's doing something special and miraculous here doesn't necessarily mean he's doing something special and miraculous. Or in other words, it's not necessarily saying that you and I have to emulate the day of Pentecost. So Christians will understand this a little bit differently, and that's what tends basically to split a Pentecostal kind of movement and the various denominations that come from that and a non-Pentecostal kind of movement is how you see this issue of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if I answered that question, but that is, that is a dividing point on how one understands the modern implications of that. So at the time that we're, we're talking about in Acts, um, who received the Holy Spirit? Was it just the, the apostles? Was it all the people in Jerusalem, the believers? In this incident, uh, you, what you're gonna, there's, no, there's no evidence that everybody who became a Christian had this experience. In other words, as we go through, I'll let you you read the book for yourself and see, and you'll realize there's no clear evidence that this happened to everybody who said, hey, I, I believe in Jesus Christ. It clearly, you see these miraculous manifestations of the Holy Spirit, which we typically call charismatic gifts. That's just the label we put on it. You are going to see this from several different people 
throughout the book of Acts, but it does not appear to be normative. Again, I'm not, if, if you have a little different theological bent, I'm just going to give you the facts of this. It does not appear to be normative, meaning there's no indication that everybody who became a Christian has happened to, but it clearly happened to some people. For me, the key question is, why is this happening to these people? And we can talk about that. So, does not appear to have happened necessarily to every believer. Okay. That, we'll get to that question. Before we do that, what is your opinion um, about Christians today speaking in tongues, prophesying, miraculous healings, other charismatic gifts, etc.? Two thoughts for you. I'll talk about two questions around the idea of charismatic gifts today. Number one, specific to tongues. This is a long story. I'm going to give you a really short version because there's other scripture that you would want to bring in to this discussion. But basically, what you see happening here is clearly, very clearly, people speaking in intelligible languages that other people hear as real languages. In other words, they're speaking and they're actually being hearing it in Arabic and hearing it in Latin and hearing it in Persian. Okay, so there's a language being spoken here. So there's also a thought today that you'll see what's called ecstatic utterances. Speaking in tongues means speaking in languages that are unknown languages. In other words, they are not speaking in Arabic or Persian or whatever. So the idea of speaking in tongues can be understood as the miraculous ability, say I'm a missionary in Saudi Arabia, and all of a sudden, in some miraculous way, I begin to speak the gospel in Arabic, and I don't know Arabic. That's more what's happening here. You'll also see the idea of speaking in tongues, like private prayer languages. A lot of what you see in modern times is someone speaking in a completely unintelligible syllables and sounds. That's called an ecstatic utterance. That actually happened in a lot of religions in that time. Nobody's speaking, doing this in any religion, but so that ecstatic utterance. So on the issue of tongues, some people think that speaking in tongues is unintelligible language. It's just the outpouring of the Spirit. Others would point to the Scripture and say, that doesn't appear to be what's happening here. It appears to be a very specific gift. So Christians do see that a little bit differently today. Second part of the question, the whole realm of charismatic gifts, of miraculous manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Are they still here or are they not? Let me say this. All Christians, uh, I, I think it's safe to say, that it's all Orthodox views would say the Holy Spirit is very active in the church today. Holy Spirit didn't just do some stuff in Acts and go, okay, I'm going to go back uh, to my house, call me when the next movie comes, I'm retiring. You know, it's not like the Holy Spirit left and now we're sort of on our own. So everybody believes the Holy Spirit is active in the church today. And I'd like to, one of the discussion questions for that you can discuss in groups or whatever is, what does spirit-filled ministry look like in the church today? And we'll get to that as we move through Acts. So everybody believes the Holy Spirit's active. The question is, is the Holy Spirit active in miraculous ways today? Christians divide into two camps. Some would say, yes, the Holy Spirit still does miraculous healings and uh, people being raised from the dead, things you're going to see in the book of Acts. Others would say, no, those things were only for a time and for a specific purpose. 
Now, for example, that we have the Bible and we can read and believe because of this, we do not need to see miraculous things for us to be able to, to listen to what God is doing. And so miraculous gifts have ceased. That position is called cessationist. Miraculous gifts of the Spirit. Not the Spirit, but miraculous gifts have ceased. Others who will call themselves, you'll see various things like full gospel, it's you know, Pentecostal movement, the various groups would say, no, they haven't ceased. The Holy Spirit still does this stuff today. So Christians do have a different point of view. Not whether the Holy Spirit can, but whether the Holy Spirit does. Is that helpful? Because I don't want to make that disagreement bigger than it is, but there is a disagreement about whether or not those things still happen today. Good question. And why do you think this happened? Excellent question, which leads us to the, what happens next. Because to me, I, I'm a big believer in read the context. I mean, pulling this out of context and saying, I don't know, what do you think? Why do you think that happened? Well, why don't we just see what happened next? Because I do think it won't necessarily solve that issue for you. I'm going to let you think about that the way you want to think about it. Uh, but look what happens next. Then Peter stood up with the eleven raised his voice and addressed the crowd. So they're all over here like, what in the world is going on? Now watch what happens. Peter stands up and says, hey, I want to talk to you guys. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. Do you think they're going to listen to what he says now? Yeah, I think so. And in fact, especially because every one of us is hearing it in our own language. Okay, I don't know what this guy's got to say, but I'm going to listen because this is really unique. There's clue number one. I mean, you just get Peter comes up, stands up in the middle of the temple area and all these people, and he says, hey, guys, I know you don't know me. I know I still smell a little bit like fish, but basically I, know I don't appear to be educated, but I've got some killer news for you. Yeah, right, see you later. You know, I'll take a flyer, I'll call you if I want you. No. This happens, what happens now? You got everybody's attention. There's the first clue to me is at least in this case, I think this miracle was done for powerful symbolic purposes. I mean, there's a deep meaning here that people don't catch right away. The undoing the Tower of Babel. Because other miracles could have gotten their attention too, right? But he does it that way because he's just... God's just so cool. He's, saying, he's got layers of things going on here. But on the, on the most obvious layer, it's like, okay, you have our attention. What is it you want to talk about? That miracle paved the way, literally, for people to hear the gospel. Does that make sense? Watch and see as we talk about miracles as we go on. I'm not telling you that's always the reason for a miracle, but oftentimes those miracles happen. Not, no, no, you notice that nobody said, oh, you're speaking in tongues? And you're Christians? Well, hey, I'm going to be a Christian. You've convinced me. They're not convinced by the speaking in tongues, but they are definitely engaged. Now he has the opportunity to speak to them. So you'll see the miracles oftentimes being used to get people's attention so they may now hear the good news. Make sense? There are a couple of other reasons, but to me this is a clear reason why this happened here. So what else does he say? He goes on and he said, men of Israel, listen to this. I'm skipping through the sermon. This is the first sermon ever preached uh, by Peter. Day of Pentecost, after this unbelievable miracle, there are apparently thousands of people listening to this. 
So he stands up, he raises his voice, he says, anybody interested in what's happening here? Yeah, you bet we are. Well, do I have a story to tell you? Listen closely. He goes on to quote three different Old Testament passages, and he begins to tell the story of Jesus. This is the center of the story. So I picked out these verses. Listen to what he says. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles. In other words, what he's saying is he's a man who did miraculous things, and they're all going, yeah, I saw it. He saw it. I heard about it, but he saw it. He was, I was there when he multiplied the loaves. I saw him heal the blind man. So these are people that have seen this happen. He said, yep, you're right. God apparently was doing something with this guy because he did a lot of miracles. He did miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. In other words, he wasn't just a special man. God's doing something here. As you yourselves know this, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, meaning, and by the way, not only was God doing these signs, everything that happened to him, God was doing that, not you. Remember when Pontius Pilate said to Jesus, like, don't you realize I have the power to free you? And Jesus said, you don't actually have any power here at all. In other words, if I want to be free, I'll be free. And Jesus talks about, I lay down my life willingly. That's what he's saying. He says, I don't know what you understand about what happened with Jesus, but let me just tell you, this is what God had planned all along. And they're like, whoa, there's something big happening here. And you, he said, God handed him over, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So everybody's kind of looking down like, yo, yeah, it was us, wasn't it? And starting to think we made a big mistake here. He said, you nailed him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now, that is fascinating. That is essentially the gospel. What he basically said is, I'm going to explain to you what has happened here. This is God's power, and it's related to this Jesus. Remember, he did miracles? Yeah, he did. That was God. And in fact, remember when he was handed over to you? That was God. And what did you do? Oh, we nailed him to a cross, didn't we? Yes. And then what did God do? Raised him from the dead. Now, at that point, people are saying, you know what? They're eyewitnesses to this. It's not like they're saying, hey, we heard that God raised him from the dead. You're going to see in other places where he talks about Jesus appearing to hundreds of people. There are people in this audience who go, that is true, you guys. I know it's crazy, but that is a true statement. And they're like, we have seen it. So again, you see the power of this eyewitness account happening. So this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of what he's saying. That's interesting because... I want you to watch the sermons in Acts as we go through, and I'll try to point this out. They're really different sometimes than the sermons we hear or that we're used to doing. That doesn't mean the sermons we hear are bad, but I want you to notice how specific their sermons are. They're always, always going to talk about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that is the reason for hope. That's the center of the good news. He isn't necessarily talking to you about Jesus is going to make your teeth whiter, He's going to make you rich. You're going to have all these fancy powers. He said, basically, here's the deal. You guys are in big trouble. You crucified the Lord. Now, for us, we didn't crucify the Lord, but we find ourselves like the people of Babel in rebellion, don't we? He says, you were in big trouble, but I have some good news for you. Jesus is raised from the dead because death couldn't hold him. And people are going, you have my attention now. 
Because death is the greatest fear, the greatest problem of any of us. And you're telling me there is a way beyond death. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And, and he encapsulates it in just a couple of verses there. You notice again how he's based on eyewitness accounts. I'm going to take you to John, the Apostle John, who's there at Pentecost. He's going to write this later, later, later in his life. And he's writing this letter to the church. Notice again... He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, that word means which we have examined, which our hands have touched, that's what I'm proclaiming to you concerning the word of life, which by that he means Jesus. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you eternal life. What's he saying? The ability to go beyond death that death has been defeated, eternal life, which was with the Father, but has now appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so you may also have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father. The whole point early on in all of the apostles' teaching is we saw this happen. We are firsthand eyewitnesses to what happened. That's a powerful thread that runs through the Scripture. It's still powerful for you and me because it's a key to, this isn't really one of my main points, but I want to take this opportunity to tell you, that's the key to evangelism. You want to say, how do I convince other people to become Christians? You don't convince other people to become Christians. You may have to speak to them and talk about their doubts, but really, that's just moving obstacles out of the way. The way people become Christians is because you and I give an eyewitness account. I can give an eyewitness account of, oh, by the way, I saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead. What can I give an eyewitness account about? Let me tell you the story of what Jesus did in my life. All right, you don't have to, and for that, you don't have to be the most learned person in the world or anything. You can go tell your eyewitness account. This is what I was like. I encountered Jesus Christ, and nothing has been the same. I'm not perfect, but I am on a completely different path. I have repented, meaning I have changed direction, and I am now following Christ. And I'm just going to tell you the difference. That's an eyewitness account. That makes sense? That's how they did evangelism. That's how we do evangelism. You just go tell your, your eyewitness story. And I think that's a powerful lesson from this. That's what the apostles did. And you'll see that over and over again in Acts. Paul is going to tell over and over again the story of his conversion. He's going to say, look, I'm just going to tell you what happened to me. And let's see what God does with that. What does the Holy Spirit do with that? And then finally, in Acts 2.36, I'm, I'm giving you the beginning of his sermon, the heart of the sermon, and the end. It's worth reading. Because a couple of things to note. Eyewitness account and an appeal to Scripture. So he says, I saw this, so I'm going to give you an eyewitness account. And I also want you to know that what happened, it is consistent with Scripture. In other words, the Old Testament said these things were going to happen. The Old Testament said these things about Jesus. That's why we study our Bibles. One of the reasons is so we can say, here's what the Scripture says is true, and I'm going to tell you my eyewitness account. That's evangelism. That's powerful. That's something we can all do. And the results are up to the Holy Spirit, not up to our ability to convince people or argue with people. Just relax. Let the Spirit do its work. We'll just go be eyewitness. At the very end, he ends it up, and he says, Therefore, having heard our eyewitness account, having seen how the scriptures foretold this, this makes sense with what God said he was going to do. 
Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus. By the way, remember, you crucified him, both Lord and Christ. So that comes with a call to action. He doesn't have an altar call. He doesn't say, so we're going to sing just as I am, about 24 verses. Any of you guys that want to come forward to be baptized, just come on, John's baptizing over here, you know, et cetera. He doesn't really do that, but that statement, you can't ignore it. I mean, you can reject it, but you can't ever go on your way again. You, in other words, have heard the story of Jesus Christ, and now you have a decision point. He's claiming this Jesus is Lord, which means he is someone that you need to obey. He is someone that you need to worship. And so, consequently, I've got a decision to make now. I can either say, I'm not going to, or I can say, yes, I want to follow him. But I can no longer go along in ignorance, can I? You notice that Peter doesn't say, you know, he wants them to become Christian. He may say, look, if I can just talk to you enough, you'll become a Christian. He says, no, I just got to tell you. I'll reason with you. I'll give you eyewitness. But the bottom line is he's Lord. What are you going to do with that? Tim Keller captures this really well. And this is one of the well, points of the gospel. He says it well. And he said it this way. He said, until we admit that we are at war with God, it's going to be very hard for us to surrender. I want you to think about what that means. It's very scriptural. He very much capturing a biblical idea. Is There is no point telling someone, you need to surrender to Jesus Christ. You need to obey Jesus Christ. You need to follow Jesus Christ if I don't think I have any problem. That's why, as unpopular as it is, if you don't have any sin you don't have any savior. Does that make sense? If you, we don't think we're at war with God, we are never going to surrender because we're not at war. What he is saying here is, let me just be honest with you guys, this Jesus is Lord. He deserves your worship and you have to make a decision. At that point, you're at a position to say, I reject it. Or you know what? I have to acknowledge the fact I crucified him. And so I've got to, I need some help. In other words, I am in rebellion with God. I am confused. I am scattered. Make sense? Then he says, and he's Savior. So in other words, this isn't, if he had just stopped and said, oh, by the way, that Jesus that you crucified, he's Lord. That would be called the bad news, not the good news. The good news is, and he is, he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. That's how they understand that, is Christ is, oh, he's the one that's going to lead us to freedom. Does that make sense? That's the gospel. You get the reality of the bad news of who we are and what we have done, and you get the hope of, but Jesus has made a way. That's the beauty of the, of the gospel. It's a great little sermon, short little sermon. I mean, that did not take 30 minutes or 45 minutes. You know, he's talking for about five minutes. He says, that's pretty much all I got to say. Now, you saw the tongues. You've heard the scripture. I told you what I saw. And here's the deal. Jesus Christ is Lord. What are you going to do with that? And then we'll find out in our next lesson, what do they do with that? But this is basically the day of Pentecost. This is the beginning of the church. This is God's first movement, if you will, of the kingdom of God, of the gospel into the world. That's how the book of Acts begins, is with God doing something miraculous for the purpose of getting their attention. People become Christians because they hear this message, the spirit works in them, not because of miracles. And that's still true today. 
By the way, the people who think that miraculous gifts have ceased, it's not that they lack belief in the Holy Spirit. They're just saying miraculous miracles never really made anybody believe. If it did, they didn't believe for very long. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is the miracles were there for a reason, but that was never enough for us to believe. The miracles were simply a gateway to get our attention. So people who think the gifts have ceased don't think God quit being effective. They just said that was never for the purpose of making people believe. Because people today would say, look, why doesn't God just raise a few people from the dead? And why doesn't he, uh, uh, which to me equates to waking somebody up during the Sunday sermon, you know, raise that guy from the dead, you know. Now, my point is, is why doesn't God just do some really miraculous stuff? I mean, people will say this. They'll say, look, and it makes sense. They'll say, look, why doesn't God just like do something unbelievable? Everybody could say, okay, that's not normal. There's this God of yours clearly is right. And then everybody would believe. That turns out not to be the case. Historically, it's not the case. I mean, think about how many miracles the Jews saw. Think about how many things that we have seen that may not be miracles, but were pretty powerful evidences. That's just not the way we're wired. We forget. We rationalize. The, they're going to argue that the miracles were never intended to be the reason you believed. And so that's why they're not necessarily necessary now. Of course, others, Pentecostals are going to say, no, it is still useful and it is still uh, active in the world. Okay? So one last thought on this. The idea of the gospel, this good news, you're going to see this good news all through the book of Acts. And I, I just want you to contrast this with what you see in the world and what you know about other religions. Is You're saying, okay, how is God going to conquer the world with the gospel? How is the gospel going to spread throughout all the world? This is how. And that's so unremarkable, it isn't funny. Wait a minute, you mean he's not going to build TV stations and radio stations? He's not going to go uh, conquer the Roman emperor and make a Christian the emperor and then we'll just mandate that everybody is a Christian. He's not going to conquer the government and make Christianity the state religion. That seems to me like you could, that'd be a lot more effective. That's not how the gospel spreads. That's not how the kingdom makes its way from Jerusalem to Rome in 32 years. It makes its way like this. People like you and me telling our eyewitness accounts of what Jesus Christ has done for us. I know that, and here's the faith, here's what requires faith. I know you're sitting there thinking, yeah, I don't know about that plan. I think God just, that might have worked in the first century, but that isn't going to work in the 21st century, right? And therein lies the faith, is are we going to rely on God's way of doing it? It's that simple. Go tell your story about what Jesus Christ did. Point people to the scripture and say, look at these events. They're rational. These are all historical events. These things all happened in history. Some of these things are attested outside the Bible as well. As we go through the book of Acts, I'm going to show you pictures of places and archaeology that go, wait a minute, they're exactly right about this. There are all kinds of things in Acts that scholars for years said, this can't be true because that wasn't happening at this time. And then lo and behold, I'll show you some archaeologists like that was happening at exactly that time. In other words, this is a very credible eyewitness history that Luke has compiled. So you can engage people intellectually. This isn't just blind faith, but it's also not just on the head, it's also the heart. It's like, I'm going to tell you now, this is reasonable to believe, but I also want to tell you, 
what this really feels like. What difference did this make in my life? And that's the way that the gospel spreads. It spreads as a rational, reasonable religion, as well as very experiential, let me tell you, the power of the Holy Spirit. And those two things together conquered the world. And that's the gospel. So, what are we going to do with that? That's your assignment. Between now and next week, when we see what happens next, is his sermon successful? Does he get some complaints on the comment cards? Do, you know, several people come forward to be baptized? What happens and how does the church begin to grow? We're going to talk about that. In fact, there's some interesting implications. What was the early church like and what does that mean for how we do church today? What if we're actually doing it all wrong? Well, I'll tell you that next week. In between, go tell someone this week. I'm serious about this. Go tell someone your eyewitness account this week. Okay? You don't have to speak in tongues first before you do it. But if you want to, fine. Let me know how that works out for you. Okay? Next week, early church, and should we be doing church differently? Thank you, guys.